The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Well, it was Tuesday morning, and I had already gotten started on um, preparing for my message this Sunday. And all of a sudden, an alert came on my computer, and many of you perhaps also saw the news immediately as it broke. And this tragedy that happened in Brussels this week, caused by Islamist terrorists, is yet another reminder to us that we live in a world filled with evil. Evil people bent on harm and hurt, all in the name of religion, or sometimes in the name of revenge. And for what? For territory, for control, for riches, for some perverse form of righteousness or publicity. And we ask why. We wonder how many more attacks will there be? And why do people have to experience pain and be fearful of traveling and suffer violence and lose their family members? And why do these things have to happen so often? Just name the cities, Boston and Paris and San Bernardino or the countries Ivory Coast, Yemen, Turkey, and others. We sit back and we wonder why. And if it isn't terror attacks that have us asking those questions, then it's sickness or disease. We have a friend named Heath. He's five years younger than I am. When Kim and I returned to Indonesia after university, he was one of the youth in our youth group that we were working with. He has three young girls and a wife, and today he's being treated for a very aggressive form of brain cancer. He and his wife had served in North Africa for seven years until late 2014 when he began suffering from stroke-like symptoms. And so while you and I were spending 2015, you know, with whatever we were doing, Heath was going through two rounds of radiation treatments and five types of chemotherapy. And he's five years younger than I am. The latest drug, uh, drug, uh, trial drug was at first not approved by their insurance until the people they work for stepped in and asked them to approve it. And all the while during their ordeal, Heath's wife Brandy suddenly required surgery to remove kidney stones. And although there have been some amazing positive things that have happened as we've been also praying for them throughout this year, like the original tumor had responded to the treatment and the, tri- the trial drugs were approved even though they hadn't been, There have also been many setbacks, and this week we got news that he's decided to go into hospice, to begin hospice, because the trial drug, or excuse me, the brain tumors are not responding to this trial drug. And so he's trying to just spend as much time at home as possible. And so if there ever was a time when we needed a message of hope, or when they need a message of hope, it is now. No time is better to remember that Christ is risen than Resurrection Sunday and to remember the hope we have in Christ of a better day. You know, when you're down three to one and there's six minutes left in the game and someone with authority and the ability to see the future says, we're going to score two more points and then we'll win this game in overtime, wouldn't you be encouraged to keep on playing? Or when your last dollar is spent and the last crumb has been eaten and a prophet of God says to you, you will have food on the table for dinner, wouldn't you be encouraged and relieved? 
or when your last appeal for a fair trial has been used and rejected and someone sent by God comes to tell you you will get out alive. Wouldn't such a message give you renewed confidence to stay alive and endure that darkness of that prison cell? That doesn't happen, you say. Well, with God, nothing is impossible. Remember that Peter walked out of a guarded prison cell, though he was chained to two guards. Remember that God provided food for Elijah through ravens. And remember that Gideon routed a whole army of Midianites with weapons like pitchers and torches. And remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter morning that proved even death has no chance against a God for whom all things are possible. Amen? He is risen. He is risen indeed. And so when it seems that evil and wickedness are closing in or when disease has sucked the life out of us, when there's no chance and when the night seems at its darkest, that's when we need a clear vision of a future redemption for, uh, to inspire hope in us, a hope that we can almost taste. And it was as I was preparing this sermon on Isaiah that the news came in and I realized, wow, now is the time that we need Isaiah's message. Because through God's prophets, he inspired hope for his people, giving those who choose, who choose to trust him a message that's filled with images and pictures of how things will turn out in the future. And so when it seems to us that the world is descending into chaos and there's trouble on all sides and it seems like we're losing this battle against sickness and disease, these visions, these prophecies of Isaiah inspire in us a hope because we know that our redemption is drawing near. And if Christ can be risen from the dead, then all things are possible with God. So when you reflect on the resurrection of Jesus Christ in light of what Isaiah wrote, you have every reason to keep your hope alive. And so today I plan on finishing the book of Isaiah by taking a sweeping look at the last 12 chapters. And I hope that we understand two things. The first is this, that God invites people into his plan of redemption. We have been invited into his plan of redemption. And secondly, that God gives his people a vision of what that redemption will look like to inspire hope in us, especially at times like these so if you'll follow along, we're going to, I'm just going to go Isaiah 55 to 66. I won't be able to read every chapter for you, but I will take a few verses in each one to, to come up with some principles that I believe are related to how God has invited us into his plan of redemption. Whatever the situation may be, remember that God has invited us into his plan of redemption. Isaiah chapter 55, beginning in verse 1, says this, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David." Friends, this is an invitation for us to enjoy the goodness of God. It's addressed to the thirsty and to the poor. It's addressed to those who have spent their money on things and, uh, and, and their effort on things that have left them unsatisfied. It's a call to an and an invitation to delight the soul 
not just in anything, but in the richest affair. It's an invitation for the soul to live through this everlasting covenant, this faithful love that God had promised to David. So an invitation, just like I've invited you to come to our open house, requires, of course, a response. In verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Seek the Lord, call on him, forsake the wicked way, turn to the Lord. That is the response if you intend to enjoy the invitation that God is promising. And responding requires, of course, faith. Verse 8, for my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts. You see, that's why we have to forsake our own thoughts, because our thoughts are not his thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. That's why we have to forsake our own ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, God is the one who has initiated a relationship with us. It begins with him, by him inviting us to enjoy his goodness. And for that, you and I have to acknowledge our need. We have to turn from our wickedness. We need to forsake our own ways and our thoughts and live by God's ways and thoughts. And for many today, that's some of the most impossible things for them to do. The majority of people today don't like to admit that they have a need. The majority of people think that they can remain, they won't admit that they are unsatisfied by the pleasures and riches of this world, and they think they can live independently of their maker. They won't agree with you or I that their ways are evil and sinful, and they consider God's ways and thoughts expressed in his word, and they've convinced themselves those are archaic, prudish, restrictive, and unenlightened. So the thirsty, the poor, the humble in heart, which I hope describes you. It is we who confess that we are sinful and we come because we want something more satisfying than the empty riches of this world. We want to experience the everlasting covenant and this chesed love of God, this tender mercies, this faithful love. We want to really live so we're willing to forsake our wicked ways and shed our lowly thoughts. I hope that's true for you. And then in chapter 56, God says to us that he welcomes even the excluded. I won't read for you all of it, but verse 3 says this, Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people, and let not any eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. If you know a little bit about your Old Testament history, you'll remember that there were certain people who were not allowed into the midst of the temple of the Lord. It was for the Jews. The covenant was for the Jews. So any Gentile was not allowed into the inner tent. And the eunuchs, it says in, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, anyone who's emasculated by crushing or cutting was supposed to be excluded from the assembly of the Lord. But God is saying a time is coming when those who once thought they were excluded are welcome. Those foreigners who were not called by the name of the Lord will be given an everlasting name. And together, the Lord's people will love him and worship him and enjoy his rest and experience joy in his house. So God's plan of redemption, his plan of salvation, includes you and I as the foreigners and the outcasts. His plan of salvation has always come through a chosen few, but it has always included the many. Even in the Exodus, as the Israelites left Egypt, there were people that followed with them. 
that attached themselves to the, the Jews and said, we wanted to be part of you. Remember Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute living in Jericho, but because she assisted the Israelites, she joined the family of God, and Rahab even has a special place in the genealogy of the Messiah. Ruth was a Moabite. The Moabites were a tribe that were excluded from the assembly of the Lord down to their 10th generation. And yet Ruth also enjoys this special place in the genealogy of the Messiah because she joined the family of God. And in Christ, we who were once far away, Paul says, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And we are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. So whatever your background, whatever your history, whatever your sins, God welcomes the excluded. And then in chapter 57, you have a list of the condemnations that God specifies the guilt of his people. It's basically an indictment of all the things they're guilty of, of sorcery, adultery, and prostitution. And yet, as you look in verse 15 of chapter 57, for this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry, for then the spirit of man would grow faint before me, the breath of man that I have created. I was enraged by his sinful greed. I punished him and hid my face in anger, yet he kept on in his willful ways. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will guide him and restore comfort to him, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. See, God's mission has always been to heal and restore the guilty sinner. Satan's mission has always been to kill and to steal and destroy. And through his deceit, people are led astray into all kinds of wickedness and sin and idolatry. We think we'll find freedom and pleasure and happiness and satisfaction, and only when we're well on our way in our own ways we discover that in, in reality we're broken, confused, hurting, bitter, and dying. And we've invented all kinds of clever ways to sin against God, and we blame God for the consequences that we suffer. And instead of changing our ways, we keep on in our willful ways. And yet, it doesn't matter how guilty any one of us is, God still desires, as he says, to revive, to heal, to restore comfort, and provide peace. As Romans 5.21 says, As sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, that's the good news, isn't it? You know, as a pastor, I get to hear many testimonies. And I get to hear of the grace of God in people's lives on so many occasions. And it's always exciting to hear whatever the story is and whatever their background has been. But one woman's story was especially moving as she shared it before I baptized her. She had left home at a young age with a boyfriend. She had gone through a couple of unwanted pregnancies, which she ended with abortions. She was promised a job as an au pair in Mallorca, but instead she became a victim of human trafficking. She became prostituted and was forced to work in strip clubs until someone, someone took an interest in her, paid a lot of money for her release, and became her husband. And so she ended up here in Denmark. 
But her troubles were far from over. She went through divorce and depression until someone brought her to church, and that, that was when she first experienced the grace and the redemption of the Lord. Today she's raising her son as a single parent, but her life has been radically transformed by the Lord. A beautiful testimony, a wonderful testimony of God's redemption and restoration in, in, in her life, proving to us again that God can restore any and all. And if you look at Isaiah chapter 58 then, as God's people were also guilty of just simply going through the motions with their religious practices. Look at verse 3 of chapter 58. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? In other words, they were doing the rituals, but God wasn't responding to the rituals. Yet on the day of your fasting, God says, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? God says, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke and set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Yes, God's commandments require many rituals, but the rituals are simply a vehicle, a means for us in our relationship with him, because his desire has always been a relationship, not the ritual itself. And so when your and my attitude towards God becomes one of humility and sincerity, when we desire to know his heart, that's when he reveals himself and blesses us. And then as we get to chapter 59 and onwards to 66, we see that God's plan of redemption that he's invited us in includes not only redemption, for those who accept the invitation, but it also includes retribution to those who do evil. Friends, that is also part of the hope that we have, not only that we will experience redemption and enjoy his goodness, but that those who do evil will truly receive justice. It serves as a warning to all those who are guilty of sin against God and as an encouragement to those who have accepted his invitation and await for his redemption. In fact, if you go to the very closing verses of the book of Isaiah, you'll see the very terms that Jesus used when he's describing hell. But before we get to those closing verses, God gave Isaiah a vision of a new heavens and a new earth. Friends, this is the redemption that we can look forward to, where there's no sound of weeping and crying, where people will not toil in vain and they won't die prematurely. Friends, God provides us a vision of future redemption to inspire hope in us. And if you read Isaiah chapter 59, you see again God's case against his own people. Your iniquities have separated you from God, he says in verse 2. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity. Their offenses against God were numerous, rebellion and treachery and 
fermenting uh, oppression and revolt, uttering lies, and no one among them could intervene. So God chose to intervene. He chose to send a Savior, a Savior to rescue the innocent, a judge, a judge to bring justice to the wicked, a Redeemer, one to restore those who are repentant. And then we get to chapter 60. And you can read along with me. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the arm. This is like a light of dawn that would break through the darkness and cause the sleeper to awake from a heavy sleep. God is stirring his people. Awake, arise, shine, because the glory of the Lord is is rising upon you. And instead of the sun rising to chase away the darkness, it's the Lord himself who rises in his glory to shine and rid the earth of all sin and evil. God gave Isaiah a vision of people coming from far and wide, foreigners crossing the seas and land to come to the light that will shine from Zion, where the Holy One of Israel will reign. And the enemies, the oppressors of God's people will be conquered, and their scorn will be replaced with pride. Their sadness will be replaced with joy. Violence and destruction will be replaced by salvation and praise. And verse 22, the end of chapter 60 says, The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation, I am the Lord, and it's time I will do this swiftly. And then he goes on to the ministry of the one through whom he will do this. And we're getting to the part about Jesus in just a moment here. Verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. See, God's servant would be anointed by the Spirit of the Lord, and he would preach the good news. He would bind up the wounded. He would free the captives and release the prisoners and comfort the mourners. And throughout the years that Israel spent in Babylonian captivity, these were the visions that gave them hope and encouragement. They knew their time in exile would end at some point and God would rise to shine upon them. They waited in expectation that their Messiah would come and everything that Isaiah had envisioned would happen and become a reality. And Isaiah wasn't the only prophet. There were other prophets, and we'll get to them in our series here, but there were other prophets who also spoke prophecies and saw visions that would give them hope. And then after the exile... Some 300 years after Isaiah's ministry, suddenly there was silence from God. No new visions, no more prophets for 400 years. 400 years silence and history marched onward, decades extended to centuries, kingdoms rose and kingdoms fell. After the Babylonians had conquered them, They were followed by the Medes and Persians, who in turn were followed by the Greeks and then the Romans. Until John, 
came crying out in the wilderness, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Fulfilling what Isaiah had envisioned 700 years earlier, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. See, Isaiah had already envisioned a shoot from the root of Jesse, and Jesse was David's father. He had envisioned a branch upon whom the Spirit of the Lord would rest, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And this Jesus who was born to Mary and Joseph was a descendant of David. And when he began his public ministry, after his temptation in the wilderness, he began teaching in the synagogues. And one Sabbath in Nazareth, Jesus entered a synagogue, stood up to read, and the book of Isaiah was handed to him. And Jesus opened the book to this very place where the prophecy was written that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant and made an incredible claim. He said, today, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So it's no wonder then that as his followers followed him, that they were expecting all of Isaiah's prophecies to be fulfilled in that day. After all, some of his prophecies were being fulfilled right there before their eyes, and they followed Jesus for three years, heard him teach about those things that Isaiah said would happen in the day of the Lord, and expecting it to happen any time. So they asked him, when will this happen? And Jesus described that the day of the Lord would be sometime in the future, with a description much like Isaiah had described it. And they thought it was just around the corner, so they asked, in fact, for this, the most special places in this kingdom that Jesus would usher in. And then imagine how their hopes and their dreams were shattered when their Savior, the Messiah they had expected, waited 700 years for, was arrested, accused, condemned and nailed to a cross to die. His body had to be taken down from that cross, beaten and bleeding, lifeless, and fit only for burial. The corpse that would belong to the light of the world was placed in a cold, dark tomb. His followers were left perplexed and afraid of the religious authorities who had condemned him to death. But as you know, friends, the story doesn't end there. Then came the resurrection. And friends, the resurrection reminds us that it is often the darkest just before the dawn. You and I may be fearful today. We may feel insecure. We may sense the danger all around us. We may be stricken or afflicted by disease or old age, but God and his light is about to break forth, and it will be at just the right time. Decades might pass, maybe centuries, and it's possible that we have yet to see the darkest times. But the resurrection reminds us that it's often darkest just before the dawn, and God's light is just about to shine. It reminds us also that although people do evil things, God has a greater plan for something good. Yes, the nations may bring their armies against the people of God. People will exploit the weak. The evildoers will steal, kill, and destroy. And you and I might be tempted to resign ourselves 
to resort to the same measures that the evildoers do and feel like our righteousness is futile. But remember the resurrection. God will redeem the evil that men do by using it to fulfill his plan to bring his sons to glory. The resurrection also reminds us that there is no power that can defeat God's plan. I'll say that again. There is no power that can defeat God's plan. Jesus chose not to fight back against his torturers or retaliate against those who spat in his face. He chose to surrender to the mockery. He gave up his last breath on the cross as his body gave out under its own weight, and it seemed as though the devil had won because the Son of God was now dead and his followers were scattered. But friends, God is not finished by, the, by only the slaying of the Lamb of God. It was part of his eternal plan necessary to pay for man's sins and to redeem us for his glory. But the story doesn't end with the Lamb being slain. The resurrection also reminds us that God fulfills his promises in his timing. Isaiah could not have been aware that there would be 700 years before the Messiah would come to fulfill the visions he had. He could not have been aware that the visions of a suffering servant would be fulfilled by the Son of God, and that a Roman cross, which hadn't even been invented, would be used as the tool of execution. And although Jesus had taught his disciples that a kernel of wheat must fall to the ground and die before it can produce many seeds, his disciples could not have been aware that his cross and his burial were in view when Jesus says to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So it wasn't until the resurrection and his appearances before them that they began to realize there was going to be some time between his coming and his coming again. But God always fulfills his promises in his timing. And finally, the resurrection reminds us as well to then wait on the Lord and to remain hopeful in his promises. Because if God could fulfill many of those prophecies and visions given to Isaiah 700 years earlier than Christ's first coming, then we can certainly trust that he will fulfill everything else that he has promised by his second coming and beyond. And just like it was centuries before Jesus fulfilled many of those prophecies, it has been many more centuries since his resurrection and ascension. And generations before us have waited and hoped and there may yet be generations before it will be fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled. So friends, this Easter I give you which I hope is a message of hope. That he invites us into his plan of redemption. The invitation is out there for you to accept. He has provided us with visions of a future redemption to inspire hope in times especially like this. And it is the resurrection of Christ reminding us to continue trusting in the Lord for our redemption is drawing near. The post that was uh, placed today in Heath's Praying for Heath Facebook page was by his wife. And she wrote this in their prayer blog, I guess you could call it, writing from the, or quoting from Chris Tomlin's song. There's a peace I've come to know, though my heart and flesh may fail. There is an anchor for my soul. I can say it is well. Happy Easter, she writes. Jesus has overcome. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you that in the midst of the darkness, when there seems to be no hope, 
and it seems all is lost, that you give us this encouraging message and you prove to us once again that you can do the impossible. And we thank you for what Jesus did on the cross and we praise you that he did not stay on the cross but that he rose from the grave. In this is our hope, Lord, that though 2,000 years have passed, you will still fulfill your promises to create a new heavens and a new earth. For this we long, Lord, and in the meantime we will trust you and have faith that we are part of your redemption plan. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.